And then let me, uh, let me pray, and then we'll look into God's Word this morning. All right. So God, we, uh, we believe in your Holy Spirit, and we believe that what we're doing this morning is a fruitless endeavor without your Holy Spirit. So we don't only believe in your Holy Spirit, we rely on the Holy Spirit, and your Holy Spirit for you to uh, open up our hearts, open up the ears of our hearts, open up the eyes of our hearts, and uh, help us to see and hear things that you can tell us and that you can show us through the Bible. Because we want to understand, God, what you want us, what steps you want us to take, how we want us to respond. Because your desire for us is that, as your word says, that we be full of the life and power that come from you. That's what you want for us. That's the end goal. You want us to be full of your life and power. So... Anything you say or show us is to that end, so we love you. Let me ask this in your name. Amen. Hey, I want to start, I'm going to jump right into a story in the Old Testament, but, um, and this is the story of uh, Israelites, and I'll explain more later, but they just left Egypt, all right? They just left Egypt, so hundreds of thousands of them, and there's a couple situations. Actually, it happened three times. You'll see down below, Exodus 19, Exodus 24, Exodus 27. The people basically, Moses tells them something that God said this, and they respond with, read the parts and quotes with me, all right? Out loud, please, loudly, all right? We will do everything the Lord has commanded. And they do it again. Uh, this is like two months after they left Egypt. Then uh, a couple weeks later, they do it again. One more time. We will do everything the Lord has commanded. And then 10 minutes later in the same conversation, they do it one more time. We will do everything the Lord has commanded. So, wow, these, these people, they're committed. They're committed to obey. They're committed to do what it Because Moses had just told them this is what God had. This is some of the regulations, laws, Ten Commandments. Okay, so that happened. Now, five to six weeks later, only five to six weeks later, this is what happened. Go to the next one. The people got up early the next morning to sacrifice burnt offerings and peace offerings. Good, spiritual, offering to God. But then it says, after this, they celebrated with feasting and drinking, and they indulged in pagan revelry, which it is all that word would encompass. Some of the, some of the other versions call it lewd behavior, sexual morality. It, but it, it's, the, the concept is chaotic out of control and a little bit wild in not a good way. So here's my question, what happened? I mean, we will do everything you, God has commanded us to do. So they would do it as one voice. They all were, they did it three times. Once, they just got out of Egypt, three times, and then five or six weeks later, they're out of control. So what happened? Does that story ever translate to our stories? So what, what goes, what's happening here, and what, what do we do? How do we learn from that, all right? So I've been doing a series, just started last week. I call it Want More. It's kind of an extension of the Christmas revival series, but wanting more is, what does it mean to want more of the right thing, relationship with God, wanting more of God? And the little tag verse I have in here from Psalm 85 is where the, Psalmist says to God, won't you revive us again so your people can rejoice in you? And the connection with God reviving us, giving new life to us, to joy, 
And there's always this connection there. And revival, if I could just use a simple definition, is when God gets the attention of his people in such a way that people who the rest of the world notices. And then they get, God, they also, God also gets their attention, but is always gets their attention through his own people, like the church. All right? So want more. And, how, you know, and so I've been reading about like revivals in history, and we're going to do a look at different revivals, so to speak, in the Old Testament where God's people were like this way, and then all of a sudden they're this way, and then how they get back, you know, how, they started with, we're going to obey, and then they go in this wildness, and then something changes, and they're back following God again. And kind of as a, as a model for us to think about our own personal lives, and what is, how does God actually work in us, all right? So go to the next slide. So everything, any kind of revival in Scripture and history always includes these elements. There's a status quo shock. Something happens where life is normal, your life, my life, the normal life we've kind of figured out, even if it's a spiritual kind of Christian life. Something gets rattled from that, usually because God's pushed a button somewhere or, or we've just made bad choices. So there's, there's a status quo gets shocked, uh, sin's exposed, Every time in every revival throughout history and in the Bible, uh, the focus is God's people realizing, oh, we, and they're exposed. And it's not because God loves just exposing and crushing people to the ground. It's because that's not what's going to lead them to the, the end that he wants for them. Sin's exposed. There's always supernatural stuff, whether it's revivals. Historically, we hear about people having these dreams and visions or in the Bible and those kind of, same kind of things happen or in the Old Testament, there was times where they saw like smoke that was representative of God, but supernatural realities becomes more pronounced, but there's also opposition, all right? So anytime there's a revival, status quo is shocked, sin's exposed, and God shows up, all right? So let me go back to these, let's go back to the, go forward, I mean, but let's go, go return to this verse that I started with. So here's the, here's the scenario. So they had just left Egypt two months prior, all right? They had been slaves for 400 years. It was oppressive. Their lives were anything but joyful. God raises up Moses to lead them out, and that's where all the plagues. God's trying to convince Pharaoh to let him go, let my people go. Pharaoh's like, no. So there's these plagues of, you know, blood and hail and locusts and all kinds of frogs, supernatural stuff, and then Pharaoh finally says, yeah, you can go, they go, then they're stuck on the, on, the, on the edge of the Red Sea, Pharaoh decides, no, I don't want him to go, he's chasing them, God opens the Red Sea, they cross through on dry land, Pharaoh follows them, and the whole army gets drowned, right? So these people, just two months prior, and maybe the weeks prior to that with all the plagues and stuff, had seen some incredible, incredible supernatural power and deliverance of God for them. Incredible. And they're going through the wilderness now. It's only been two months, so they're, they don't have, they're not, they haven't been, they haven't pushed their patience yet. So when Moses, God tells Moses some of the regulations and he gives them the Ten Commandments, you know, thou shalt not, no graven images ahead before me. Don't don't murder, don't steal, don't commit sexual immorality. And he gives them those. And the first time in Exodus 19, they're like, Moses tells them that. And this is, again, two months after all this. Of course, they're kind of glowing in the power of they saw God. We will do everything the Lord has commanded. So they did it with one voice. 
And then Moses has more conversation with God in the chapters between 19 and 24 where God gives him some more, what, what best way to call it, just rules and regulations. And it sounds kind of heavy, and, but it's, it's basically God saying, no, this is how I want you to live your life. If you live your life this way, you will have the peace and joy and you'll have all you wanted in life. You'll have even prosperity. God even promises prosperity. He even says, if you live this way, you, were, you, will be my, you are my special treasure. So it's not God just saying, please keep my rules. It's no, I want you to be my special treasure. I'm gonna be a presence in your lives. I'm gonna, you're gonna have prosperity. Nothing will harm you. But you gotta do things my way. Not because God's selfish, but because he knows how he made us. And he's like, if you, because they just come out of Egypt where, you know, behavior-wise and morality-wise, it was probably a mess. So he's saying, you can't live like they lived. I want you to live this way, even in terms of relationships, sexuality, money, debt, loss, all that stuff. God was giving them something. This is, this is how I want you to live. And if you live this way, it's going to protect you protect your relationship so they can all thrive. That's why he was doing that. So God gives him some more things. The people say again, we'll do everything the Lord has commanded. And then just a few verses later in the same chapter, we will do everything the Lord has commanded. And then the next slide, which I said at the beginning, they, six weeks later, five to six weeks later, they're engaging in Pagan revelry, and some of the versions, other versions translate it this way, dancing wildly, lewd behavior, wild party, sexual immorality. And it wasn't just a party. Some versions just say party because that's the word, they, the Hebrew word. But it must have been something way more than that because in the verses right after that, it's God's telling Moses, I'm going to wipe him out. I'm so angry at this. I'm going to wipe him out. I'm going to start over. Kind of like what God said to Noah, you know, generations before. So we knew it was something where they just said, we're going to do whatever God tells us. And now five or six weeks later, they're like in a whole different place. So the question I'm asking is, what happened? And I'm asking that because five or six weeks from now, could something happen? To, I mean, how, how does it happen in that short of time? We tend to think it's going to be a slow drip, but it's like, no. They were like resolute, and then five or six weeks later, they're like totally throwing it off. What happened? And can that happen to you and me? And here's what happened. <laughs> golden calf happened. And then you might say, oh, golden calf, yeah, okay, we don't worship idols anymore, not a big deal. But let me, do, let me read the passage, and I'm going to talk about how that this golden calf represents, not just for them, but probably for us, ways in which that five- to six-week period, can, we can see a downward slide like, all of a sudden we're like, oh, I was so devoted to God, but now I'm in a place I don't want to be, all right? So, so this is Exodus chapter 32. So again, they had all said all this. We're going to be committed to you, God. We obey you, da-da-da-da-da. So God has Moses come up on Mount Sinai. Um, God had already been talking to Moses, giving them the laws, regulations, all those things. But God says, I want you up here Again, and this, God actually tells Moses, I'm going to show myself to you. And Moses alone is allowed to go up there. And it's time for Moses to hear from God 
largely because it was going to give him the direction and the courage and the empowerment he needed to lead God's people in what was going to be coming up next as they went to the promised land. But he was up there for a while. I'm sure Scripture tells us it was 40 days. So these people, and, and I'll stop right here to say, when I say these people, it's easy to say that in a condescending tone. <laughs> these, these idiot people who didn't trust God. But I think I realized long ago in Scripture, if there's people like the disciples do something stupid or the people of Israel did something stupid, it's probably wise to see the high probability that you could have been in that same group. That we tend to think, oh, that they, I can't believe they did that. But it's like, ah, we could all see ourselves there. So uh, it's good for us to have enough humility to realize if we were back in that story, we may have been a part of those people, all right? So, so Moses is up there for 40 days, and they're getting a little bit like, where is he? And this is how Exodus, 33, Exodus 32 starts out. When the people saw how long it was taking Moses to come back down the mountains, they gathered around Aaron. And it says they gathered around Aaron, but the sense of that word is they kind of, it's kind of like crowding around him, kind of out of like, come on. What's... So it wasn't just a peaceful gathering. It was kind of like driven a little bit of anxiety. Come on. What's... They gathered around Aaron, Moses' brother, all right, kind of the number two man. Come on, they said. Make us some gods who can lead us. We don't know what happened to this fellow Moses who brought us here from the land of Egypt. What happened? I mean, 40, 40 days he was, and now they're impatient. We don't even know what happened to Moses. So, Aaron, you've got to find some gods that lead us. We, we need something. Cause... So Aaron said, take the gold rings from the ears of your wives and sons and daughters and bring them to me. All the people took the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. Let me stop there for a second. Where'd they get those earrings? Well, when, who said Egypt? Somebody said it. When they left Egypt, God actually, they were, the Egyptians were so eager for them to go after all these plagues. And God said, now go ask all your masters for nice clothes and fine jewelry. And so all the jewelry they were wearing wasn't jewelry they bought at the jewelry store when they were slaves in Egypt. It was because their masters gave it to them as, please get out of here. So they're wearing fine clothes and jewelry they had gotten from the previous masters. Again, another sign of what God had done for them. But it was kind of, this was what was valued in that culture. And so, so Moses takes those, Aaron tells him, take them off. And then he says, all the people took off the gold rings from their ears. And brought them to Aaron. Then Aaron took the gold, melted it down, and molded it into the shape of a calf. When the people saw it, they exclaimed, O oh, Israel, these are the gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And I'll explain the calf here in a second. Aaron saw how excited the people were, so he built an altar in front of the calf. Then he announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So you, you might ask the question, which is a legitimate question, what? Why a calf? What? Why, why, why was that what Aaron, or, yeah, Aaron shaped out of the gold? <laughs> Just an aside here. I think one of the... It's not funny. It's sadly funny. Because later on when Moses confronts Aaron, like, what'd you do? And Aaron's like, well, I put all this gold in a pot and melted it, and out came this calf. Like, like 
No, the Bible says Aaron molded it. He made it, but he makes it sound like, son, look what happened. I don't know what happened. I always thought that, that it's almost ironically funny but sad comment. Out came this. So, but why a calf? Well, a calf, uh, Egypt had many gods. One of the primary gods was a calf kind of cattle god named Apis, A-P-I-S. But they had other gods like that. But in ancient culture, a lot of a lot of gods were maybe represented this way. You think about the Baal that you hear about in the Old Testament. The Baal was often uh, cattle or cows because what they represented in that culture was prosperity. If you had, if you had cattle, then you could eat. They could help plow. You had food because it was an agrarian culture. So if you had cattle, if you had powerful bulls, then you had money, you had prosperity, you were taken care of. And so the gods, and, and added to that, so it not only represented power and money, it, re, it represented fertility, i.e. sexual virility. All right? So because that's what was valued in that culture. Not unlike today, money, sex, and power. That's what's valued in the culture in Egypt. That's what's valued in our culture now. My life is good if I have this, this, and that. So the golden calf, most of us have never melted anything down to make an idol to put in our bedroom to worship. And so it's easy to kind of mock that, but the reality is that was a cultural expression that they understood that was about money, sex, and power. We have the same issues, money, sex, and power, but the cultural expressions aren't like golden idols. They're other things we accumulate, put our attention to, or try to get, right? It's the same thing. So they're basically, they, they're doing what they knew. The culture said, we value this. And so they, they want something that's going to tell them they're going to be prosperous because they, they, what happened to Moses? What happened to God? And it... it it represents something they can control. It represents the desires they want, prosperity, fertility, and control. I want to be in control of this. It represented their wants, their desires, their expectations. And they wanted God, they wanted their God to meet the needs of their wants. Prosperity, Virility and power, control over my own life. That's what they wanted. That's what, that's what we all want, right? We all want that. So that became for them. And then Aaron tries to make it kind of seem spiritual, like God-like. Oh, we'll build an altar right in front of it, and tomorrow we'll have one of these offerings that God told us to have. But like anything else, when you combine what God says to do, and then tolerate something that's not from God with it, it becomes almost a greater stench in the nose of God, right? Because Aaron's trying to make it like it's okay. Because Aaron's tolerating something that he shouldn't tolerate. He knew the very same things that Moses knew, all the people knew that God wanted and God was asking them to do that would lead them to the prosperity and fullness of life and joy that God already told them. 
but they became impatient. 40 days, that's a long time. Wow, 40 days. They became impatient because God wasn't doing it soon enough for them. And that's maybe where it hits home for some of us. God's not doing this soon enough for me. He's not doing it according to my understanding of my circumstances. He's certainly not doing it according to the wants that I have. I want this, God, I want this. I really want more financial security. I really want this. I really want this in my relationships. I want this. And it's not, it's not wrong to have wants, but it's wrong if those wants become greater than your want in your relationship with God. And that, I think, is what's really important to kind of grab from this. It's not wrong to have wants. I want, I want financial stability. I want prosperity. I, I want relational intimacy. I want, I want some degree of control in my life without being an idol in me. I want that. But if those things start crowding, well, I, I want more of God, but I really want more of God so you can help me get those wants in the way that I want them. And then it becomes this convoluted kind of, wait a minute, which, do you want more of this? Or do you want more of God? Well, I want more of God helping me do this. Well, that's, that's kind of weird. It's out of balance, all right? So go to the next slide. Here's the question I'll ask for the day. Do you want more of anything else more than you want more of God? Like if I were to say, okay, and I'll, I'll be self, I'll, I'll be, I'll, I'll talk about myself here. If, if somebody were to say to me, you know, we're, I'm going to offer you financial stability and then some for the next, you know, 25 years of your life, assuming I live that long. You'll have all you've ever wanted. You'll be able to take all the vacations with your kids you ever wanted. Your retirement's going to be like you'll never have to want or worry about anything. Or option B is you can, you can have more in your relationship with God. And, of course, we know the obvious right answer, but then we sit and think, well, I've already got the God thing checked off, so I think I'm good for heaven. So why can't I just have this? I've already checked that box. Well, what we've already done is we've, just, we've shown that we think a relationship with God is simply a box to be checked. It's almost like if I were to say, well, I've already, Kath and I are already married. Why do we need to have more of a relationship with her? We, we, we never see that in marriage. We, we shouldn't say that with God. But if somebody offered that or if somebody said, you can have all the relational health and dream, all the dreams and fantasies, fantasies you've ever wanted, or you can have more of God. And more of God just seems so kind of ethereal, but it's like, well, I've already, again, I've already checked the God box off. I think I got that. I go to church. I give money. So I think I'm good when it comes to my heaven ticket. So why can't I have that and still hold on to that? So we're doing this. I want both. And or I really want more, I want, I want to have control, I want to have control of my own life. I don't want anybody else telling me what to do. I don't want anybody else controlling my circumstances. But then, but if you want more of God, you can't have control. So again, it's kind of want more money, sex, racial intimacy, power, or do I want more of God? And Maybe you're not like me, but I, my, my, what it screams out for me is, why can't I have both? But God's like, no, you, you want this, 
and all the prosperity and goodness you hunger for is part of what I promise you. You don't, it, but, but, but we're not sure if God's going to come through on the timeline I want to. I mean, I, I'm this age now. I really want to have, this time in my life, I wanted to have this. By this time in my life, by next week, by next month, I wanted this. I want that. So I don't know that God's going to obey my timeline. So I better, I better take control and make it happen. So, you know, do you want more of anything than you want more of God? And questions you could ask yourself was, well, how do you spend your time, your energy? What does that tell you about what you want most of? I think a challenge for me lately is, this is a question I was, what I worry most about often tells me what I want most, right? I can be a worrier when it comes, to, well, I can be, I am, when it comes to money, paying for kids' college, trying to make sure this, this, this. And lately I've wondered, okay, my level of worry is maybe exposing my want meter more than I want to be exposed. Because if I'm worrying about that, am I worrying about that more than I want more of God? And you might say, do they have to be mutually exclusive? And I was like, well, but I think the starting point is always there. Do I want more in my relationship with God? Do I want to understand him more? Do I want to know more? Do I want to, do I want to hear his voice more? Do I want to respond to him more? Do I want to... So what do you worry about most in life? What are you most anxious about? Sometimes that might, that might expose your golden calf. What do you want God to do for you that he's not doing for you? So therefore, I'm going to craft it, a God in the image of the God I want so he'll do for me what I want to have done because God's not doing it in the time or manner or degree that I want. And that's, that's what's happening here. That's what's happening here with the children of Israel. So we, we, can, we can look at them and kind of laugh and mock them, but then, if we're honest, we should be in that crowd as well. So, and the, and the last thing I want to, that I'll, uh, that I'll ch challenge on this, and the question is, what, what are the, another way to see where your golden calf is. So this, if I could title this sermon, I'd say, how to recognize your golden calf in three easy steps, whatever, all right? What, what are the little sins that you tolerate in your life, which usually will say that you want something more than you want more of God. And I mean little sins that we tend to think, well, yeah, I, I indulge in this more than I should, or there's things I, yeah, I look at things on the internet more than I should, but no be, or I do more of this, or yeah, I did kind of, I kind of tweaked the truth on that one a little bit. But it's these, what I'll call these little sins that we think, well, I can can still, and they, they may not even be like explicit sins in Scripture, but it's just things you know God's told you, I want you to stop doing that. Or I want you to start doing this, and you're like, I'm not ready to do that. If it's, if it's something God's told you to do or not do, that has as much force as even, you know, some of the commandments of sexual, sexual sin or money or lying or things like that. So what are the things you tolerate? So I brought my... It's one of my favorite things to show, all right? The check engine light, all right? How many have, right now have a check engine light on in your car? And how long have you tolerated that, Bill Downey? Okay, all right. All right. But it's easy to tolerate, I'll, I'll use the example of cars. It's easy to tolerate things 
going wrong with her. I have a check engine light. I, I, I drive a van that has 367,000 miles on it. So I deserve a check engine light on most of the time, right? But I also know, okay, I, it's telling me something I should maybe pay attention to. And I do. I've kind of tried to figure it out. But think about other car things. Like one of my daughter's cars, when we drove it recently, it was always pulling to the right, pulling to the right. It was like you had to fight it. Eh, I can tolerate that. But then after a while, I thought, that, that could actually, it's, it's something I can tolerate, but it might lead to greater trauma if for some reason that causes an accident. So maybe I shouldn't tolerate that little pull to the right. Or another one of our cars, I don't know how this happened, but our headlights were like in painfully dim, but they were also pointed this way. Instead of this way, they were like that. And I'm just like, you're driving at nighttime, and you might as well be driving in the dark. And I thought, well, you know, we can tolerate that. And then after a while, when I had to drive that car, I'm just like, I can't see anything. I'm going to have an accident if I tolerate that. But there's expense involved. Have to buy the headlights, probably have to help, have somebody help me figure out how to get them level again because they were like way over the place. So, but we tolerate little things maybe in our own lives that way that we think, well, so far it hasn't really caused any, I haven't had an accident yet. So far I haven't done anything horribly sinful, but I can still do that and I can still do that and the chankage and light's still on and the pull, car still pulls to the right and I can't see out of the headlights at night. But I, I wonder maybe what things you or I are tolerating in my life or your life that God's saying that is not going to lead you to the fullness of peace and joy in life that I gave to you. So it is kind of this, you see how this, this you, you understand then, at least I'm understanding more and I hope you do too, that revival in our lives often is going to be God exposing something to us we really don't want to see, but if we're deep down honest, we really want to be free of. I don't want that anymore. I want God more than I want this. And somehow God has to stir in us, and we have to be responsive, and he's hunger for, I want more of God more than I want that anymore. Even though that has been giving me some degree of joy, four-point font, small word. God promises joy like in a large way, but I'm not getting it, so I better find something that I can have. And I, what do I do? So I'm going to... So I, my challenge is, what's your check engine light? What's your car pulls to the right, needs to be aligned when your headlights are off? That you think, or I think, it's just that's a small thing. It's probably not a big deal to God anyway, but... It seems like, well, I mean, a golden calf, what's the big deal? You had a festival, you, you made sacrifices to God, what's the big, that's probably what Aaron was thinking, we've sacrificed to God, but God was angry about it because it was this kind of like, I, I want this, but I want that, I want both. And it seems like God's, not seems like, the scripture even tells us he's a jealous God. He's not like flying off the handle, but he knows He's jealous because he knows if he doesn't have all of us, he cannot give us all that he's promised us in terms of the fullness of life and joy. So let me get this last slide here. This is from Hebrews chapter 12, and it leads into communion. So 
uh, writers talking about, he kind of talks about all the heroes of faith who wanted more of God than they even wanted to be alive. They were, a lot of them were martyrs, so they really wanted God more than anything, more than suffering, more than pain. And he says, therefore, since we're surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, read the yellow with me, all right? Let us strip off every weight that slows us down. Check engine lights, car pulling to the right, headlights out of line. Let's take it off. Anything that pulls us down. Especially the sin that so easily trips us up. Scripture doesn't tell us what that is, but the sin that so easily trips you up might be unique to you and unique to me, but you know what that is, all right? Especially the sin that so easily trips us up and let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. In other words, strip off everything that weighs us down. Things that you think, that's not a big deal to God. Maybe it is. Ask him. Oh, that can't be that big of an issue. Ask him. He may be like, take that off. Stop it. And then the why, and this leads right into communion. Next verse. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. And then Scripture says, and I, I love this passage, this part of the passage. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. In other words, he wanted more of what he was going to be completely obedient to God, even though, because he knew there was joy. He knew that on the other side of the cross there was joy. On the other side of this journey there's joy and peace. I don't mean other side like dead. I mean when we... Even in this life, God can give us a fullness of joy, supernatural joy and peace and generosity and kindness and strength that we've never imagined. But it says we do this because we see, watch Jesus do it because of the joy awaiting him. He endured the cross. He endured in his, his situation suffering, pain, false accusation. He endured not getting things when he wanted it, how he wanted it because he trusted God. He endured the cross disregarding its shame. So whether it's a small thing you need to strip away from your life or a big thing you need to strip away from your life, the example is always Jesus. I don't mean that in a trite way, but he says, no, no, we watch him and see how he handled his wants and desires. In the Garden of Gethsemane, what's he, what is his prayer to God? He's like, God, Take this cup from me. I don't want this. He's on his knees. He's sweating like blood. I don't want this. Take this away from me. But then he adds the part of the prayer that is the most beautiful part, strong part of the prayers of Jesus ever, I think. He says, but nevertheless, whatever you want, not what I want. I'm telling you what I want. I don't want the cross. I'm telling you what I want. But... I want you more than what I want. So if that's not what you want from me, God, I'm going your way, not my way. So that's, that's the example we follow. So um, we take communion in Exodus. Just to, uh, we do it every week to remind us that life of faith is not a life of trying to live more moral. It's not a life of just trying to be doctrinally pure. It's a life where we follow Jesus and we trust Jesus because of what he's done for us, all right? So Aaron's going to come on up. He'll lead us in a song or two. I, I don't know. And then we'll, uh, how we do communion here, we just, we don't dismiss our rows. You just come on up and uh, take the bread, wafer, and then we dip it in the cup. Most people eat it right away after they dip it in the cup. 
Some people take back their seats, you can do whatever. But um, I think this week, you know, Jesus says, remember me. Let's remember, which is what we just read from Hebrews. Remember that Jesus kind of pushed, he endured, he pushed through. And uh, maybe there's things in your life he's asking you to strip away. And maybe this is taking this wafer into your body as an invitation of Jesus. Show me what it is. I'm, I'm going to invite you into me to show me if there's anything that I need to strip away because it's slowing me down in my race to be full of the life and power that comes from you. All right, let me pray and then we'll take Jesus. Um, no one like you, Jesus. Um, no one even close in the whole hallway of anybody who's been a religious leader, any religion of the world, any philosophers of the world. Uh, there's no one that even comes close to where you are because you alone are God. You alone gave yourself for us, and you alone can pour into us supernatural life from the Holy Spirit. So that's why we worship you. We follow you. And we want to follow you wholeheartedly and completely. So um, we're grateful that you gave yourself to death and that God raised you from the dead. And this, what we put into our bodies now is because... Uh, you put life into us, and you're always putting more life into us through your Holy Spirit. We love you, Jesus. We're thankful. We're grateful. Um, and our gratitude um, is beyond measure, and it's even beyond our understanding. And we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.